We know that uh, by Matan Torah, the Torah tells us that Klai Yisrael was Roem and Sakolos. We saw, we saw the sounds. So what does it mean that we saw the sounds? So Zara HaKadosh tells us that it's a, it's a, it's a pretty wild Zara HaKadosh. The Zara HaKadosh tells us that the sounds were etched into the darkness, meaning it was totally dark. And when the sounds came from Shamayim of giving over the Torah, in the darkness, the, the, the kolos became visible. In other words, it's like it sort of like wrote itself into the darkness. So that what we heard, we actually saw. This is what the Zara Kaddish says. The question is, what's the significance of this miracle? What's the significance of the fact that we were Roa Mesakolos? Before I start in on the answer or an answer to that question, let's ask another question as well. Many years ago, there was a young man who was very hurt. He was a hurt person. And he had a Rebbe that he really didn't like when he was younger. And uh, he felt that the Rebbe didn't treat him nicely. He was very upset at this Rebbe. He held on to that resentment for many, many years. And uh, I came home from Eretz Yisrael, and I was excited about my Yiddishkeit. And this young man, a couple of years younger than me, he said, he's like, it's a ridiculous religion. We never even wanted the Torah we know that the Gemara tells us that HaKadosh Baruch Hu was Kafa Aleim Har Kigis, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu held the mountain over our head. And he said, accept the Torah, v'imlav sham Either accept the Torah or I drop the mountain. That's what Chazal tells us. So this young man, again, he was hurt, he was holding on to a lot of resentment, he wasn't really asking a Hashkafa question, but he was expressing his pain over the fact that he felt stuck, that... I, 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 like, I didn't even want the Torah. HaKadosh Baruch Hu held the mountain over our head, and he said, accept the Torah, and if not, I'll kill you. And who wants to be part of such a religion? So I thought that was a good kasha. I thought I was, I was 18 years old, I had come back from Eretz Yisrael, I thought that was a fair point. What does it mean that HaKadosh Baruch Hu was kafal ayam harkigigis? And one of the explanations of this is, ties very much into what the Zohar HaKadosh just said, which is the truth of reality became very apparent by Matan Torah. Let me explain what I mean. Why are we able to do things that make no sense? We would ne- there are certain things that we could not do. We couldn't bring ourselves to do them. Like, for example, if I gave you a knife right now, and I said, I give you full permission, you won't get in any trouble. You are welcome to come stab me in the chest. There's nobody in this room that could do that. I hope. There's nobody, and I say I hope, because one time I gave this marshal, and a young boy in the audience raised his hand, and he goes, I could stab you. <laughs> so, I said, so I said to this boy, I said, you can't. I said, a healthy person is not capable of inflicting harm upon another person for no reason. And he goes, no, I could. I really have, my point was that we don't have as much bechir as we think we do, and he was like, no, I could do that. So I said, okay, come prove it. Here's a pencil. It's one of those lead pencils. Come stab me. I knew that he wouldn't be able to do it. Everybody in the room, there were 70 guys in the room, I knew that he wouldn't be able to do it. He walked to the front of the room and he goes, I won't get in trouble? I said, you won't get in trouble. I know what he's going to do. He's going to like, the most he'll be able to do is like make the motion, right? He's not actually going to stab me, right? <laughs> 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 
it, he didn't stab me like like that. He was really gonna hurt me, but it hurt. So like, I mean, it was like a pinch, you know. So so I was like, you know, if you come in halfway and you hear this story, it sounds much worse than it is. I come in, he's like he stabbed me. Yeah, no, no, it's very dramatic if you come in halfway. So he thought he was gonna get a big laugh from the audience. He thought like all the guys in the shear were gonna laugh at, at, at me because he was because I was obviously wrong. But instead, there were seventy guys in the room that were just sitting there like. What did you just do? You really just stabbed a bird? So he went, he sat down, he was beat red, and I said to him, like, it's okay, I invited you to do it, it wasn't your fault. About a, maybe three minutes later, he walked out of the room and he never came back to Shear that summer. He never came back because he was so embarrassed. I went and found him. And I said to him, it wasn't your fault. But he's like, no, Rebbe, that was messed up. And I'm like, okay, that's true, but like, you know, like I don't want to like, tell him, no, it was okay, it wasn't okay. But most, most, most people do not have the capacity to just stab another person. Why? Because the truth of the reality is that that person did nothing to deserve being stabbed. We literally couldn't bring ourselves to do it. Much the same way that we couldn't take an axe and chop off our own hand. The amount of strength that it would take, and only under very specific conditions. Let's say, let's say a person was hiking, and a boulder falls on their arm, and now they're trapped. Right? And they won't be able to get out in their life. They're going to die if they, don't, if they don't get out. Under those circumstances, maybe a person would have to work very hard to be able to overcome the pain of chopping off their own arm in order to save their life. But we don't have Bechira to just chop off our own arm. Why? Because the truth of reality tells us, don't take off your arm. Why do you need that? That's an important appendage, right? And yet... Everybody in this room does things all the time that we know are not necessarily the best thing for us. People can use all sorts of substances that they know are not good for them, even though today so many kids are doing these things, right? And they're convincing themselves, ah, it's not a big deal, right? But, and even though they know that it's a big deal, but we're capable of doing things that will harm us. This is what the Gemara means. The Gemara says, A person cannot do an Avera unless a wind of insanity overtakes them. Why? Because if you knew that there was a God, and when I say knew, I mean, let's say it was mamish right in front of you, visible, would you be able to do an Avera? You wouldn't be able to do an Avera because the truth of the impact of the Avera is so profoundly negative, why would I ever want to bring that into the world? It would be like the equivalent of injecting yourself with a serious illness. Why would I ever want to create any level of separation between me and God? So at Har Sinai, things were so clear, we were rowing mesakolos. Everything was so obvious to us that it would have been impossible for us not to accept the Torah. This is the inner meaning of kafa aleim harkigigis, right? Akolos Rochel held the mountain over our heads and he said, accept the Torah, if not, I'll drop the mountain. Meaning, we understood that the world was waiting for us to accept the Torah. This was critical to the existence of the world. In fact, Chazal tell us that at the time of Matan Torah, the stars, the alignment of the stars, the constellation Shamayim, was exactly the same constellation as it was right before the flood came, right before the Mabla. It was exactly the same. And the astrologers, those who studied the science of the stars, they looked up into Shamayim and they said, Oh my gosh, we're in big trouble. Another flood is coming. So they ran to the great Gentile prophet, who was Bilam, and they said to Bilam, we're all going to die. And Bilam said, relax. This time, Klal Yisrael is here to accept the Torah. Meaning, 
The same way that before HaKadosh Baruch Hu brought the flood, there was an energy in the world, and either it was going to come down as Torah or it was going to come down as destruction. And in those times, Klai Yisrael didn't exist. There was nobody to accept the Torah, so the world was destroyed. Now, Bilaam is saying, don't worry, Klai Yisrael is here to accept the Torah. Of course we accepted the Torah. It was obvious to accept the Torah. But now we have another question in front of us. Now we know what it means, Roem Esakolos. But still, isn't that like a very dramatic thing? Like, hold the Torah over our head, accept it, if not, this will be your death. But there's a deep message here. It's a message that I want to share with you tonight. There are two perspectives in Kabbalah Satorah. The perspective of Moshe Rabbeinu and the perspective of Am Yisrael. The perspective of Moshe Rabbeinu is above the mountain. The perspective of Am Yisrael is below the mountain. Meaning, if you're Moshe Rabbeinu and you're up in Shamayim, right? You're face to face, so to speak, with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You're Panim El Panim. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu is right there in front of you. It's clear as day. Klal Yisrael is under the mountain with the threat of death. It's clear as day to them too, but it seems to be a very different type of Kabbalah Satorah. It's not a Kabbalah Satorah, it doesn't seem like. It's not a Kabbalah Satorah of Moshe Rabbeinu above the mountain, everything is good. It's a, it's a Kabbalah Satorah of below the mountain. If you mess up, you're going to die. That's a very different type of Kabbalah Satorah. Why is it that this was the Kabbalah Satorah that we had? This is a very... Very subtle idea. In other words, there's two types of Kabbalah Satorah. We all have this in our life. We have Moshe Rabbeinu moments and we have Klal Yisrael moments. Moshe Rabbeinu moments are where we have total clarity and we say, yes, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I want to live for you. I want to give my life to you. I want to do things for you in this world. That's a Moshe Rabbeinu type of moment. But there's another moment, another type of Judaism that we sometimes encounter, which is, I have to do this because... I don't know, otherwise what's going to happen? I'm going to die. Like, I have to do this. I have to be involved in Torah. It doesn't have the same, at first glance, it doesn't have the same type of sweetness as what Moshe Rabbeinu's Torah is. It's much more of like a, a threat type of Torah. That's what it feels like, right? It's clear as day to me that if I don't follow the Torah, things will not go well. It's like, um, I know a good mashal. Sobriety. Sobriety is a good mashal. Some people become sober because they say... I want, a, I, want a, I want a good life. I want to be sober. I want a good life. I don't want to be messed up in the head. I want to be able to be in deep relationships. Some people become sober because they say, if I take another drink, I know I'm going to end up dead on a street corner. That's a, that's a kafa aleim harkigigas type of thing. I have to retain my sobriety, otherwise I'll die. And by the way, that's no exaggeration. There are people like that in the world, that their, their levels of alcoholism, God forbid, could become so serious that they could go on a bender and they could lose total self-control and they could chas v'shalom hurt themselves or hurt others. So they stay away from the alcohol not because of the beauty of a sober life but because of the danger of an alcoholic life. Those are the two perspectives, Moshe Rabbeinu and Klal Yisrael. Moshe Rabbeinu was only one. He was only one person. That means the rest of Klal Yisrael had the negative type of Kabbalah Satorah. It was so clear to them that they had to accept the Torah because I don't know what life would be if I didn't accept the Torah. The entire world could be destroyed. This doesn't seem to be the positive Judaism that we've been looking for our entire lives. So what's the message over here? This is a very serious question. But I think perhaps the answer can be understood as follows. It's not chas v'shalom negative. It's reality. The reality is 
that there are times where Yiddishkeit can be challenging. You know, it's like today, nobody wants to say that out loud because then we're afraid if we say out loud that Yiddishkeit can be challenging, that people will run away. People won't run away. We're smart people. We know that Yiddishkeit can be challenging. We know that there are things that we might want and a Yetzer that we have to be misgaber on, and it's not so simple. We know that. How do we do that, though? How do we, how do we encounter the challenging moments of our life and stay loyal? Because that's really what it's about. Loyalty is a big word. It's not a word that we use enough. We talk a lot about being in a loving relationship with Hashem, but perhaps there's value in talking about a loyal relationship to Hashem. Staying loyal to Hashem when I don't necessarily want to do what He wants me to do. When I'm not perhaps aligned in the most you know, intense type of way. When things are aligned, things are well, but sometimes, I don't know, you ever, you ever, go, back, uh, you ever go back somewhere and it's like you fall back into old patterns just because you're there? You know what I'm talking about? Like, like, uh, like, when I walk into my parents' house, the first thing I do is I check the cupboard to see what snacks my mother has. Because that's what I did when I came home. You know, when you come home from school, the first thing you do, I'm not even looking for something. I just want to know it's there. You know what I mean? That's why sometimes you go into the freezer and you open it up and you don't find anything you like. But then five minutes later, what do you do? You go back to the freezer as if something happened in between the time that you looked the last time and now. Right? What you're looking for is love in the form of food. No, I'm joking. I'm just, that's, that's maybe what I'm looking for. Yeah? Love means Ben and Jerry's, right? So there's a... No, I know I'm not wrong. I'm just, you're not supposed to say the joke and then actually mean it. So, the, the idea here is, and it's a very sophisticated idea, the idea here is, I can be loyal to HaKadosh Baruch Hu if I can visualize Matan Torah. What I mean to say is as follows. In, in every seminary, in every yeshiva, there's something called a halacha class or a halacha seder, Right? It's a very challenging class to teach. Because on some level you want to be there, and on some level you really don't. Because you know that you have to know these things, so you have to go to the class so that you can learn the things, so that you can even know when I have a question, right? That's not a simple thing to know. Something happens in the kitchen, do I have a shaila? I remember once when I was in Rav Shachter's class that I heard this concept in halacha, so now maybe I tell my husband, call the shul rabbi, right? It comes up. Halacha, though, can be, forgive me for speaking this way, because it's obviously not, but halacha could be boring. Halacha is not, it's not Tanakh, it's not Musr, it's not Hashkafa, it's not a class about dating and marriage, and all of the classes are about dating and marriage, right? It's not, so like, it's like, these are the rules of engagement. It's a hard class to teach. You know what's, you know what's hard when we're younger about going to a halacha class? You're trying to teach me Hilchel Shabbos, before I care about Shabbos. It's not, that, it's not that I'm not smart. It's like, and this, I don't know what Borer did. Like, Borer did nothing wrong. Of all the malachos, Borer is just like every other malacha. But for some reason, Borer is the malacha that everybody picks on. Like, 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 really, Rabbi? How I eat the watermelon matters. Like, I've got to be careful about the seeds and the watermelon. The answer is yes. You have to be careful about that. But what they're really asking is not about borer. They're not asking about watermelon seeds. What are they really asking about? They're really asking about, like, why are you teaching me about the laws of Shabbos if you haven't introduced me to the majesty of Shabbos? 
I can't study the menu without knowing if the food is delicious. If a person comes to a restaurant, the reason why when they read the menu, if you go to a fancy restaurant, and they, you know, it's like a, we have a reduction of hyssop, you know, like they have like all these like fancy terminologies for things, yeah? If a person reads these things, their mouth begins to water because they, they look and they see steak and they go, I've had steak before, right? I know what steak tastes like. I'd be excited to have a steak. I see smoked ribs on the menu and I'm in Texas, right? So I'm thinking to myself, I saw that YouTube video, right, about smoked ribs in Texas. I'm excited for ribs in Texas. And if somebody came to us and they said, again, if you're a connoisseur of meat, and I assume that none of you are, but I would like to be, it's one of my aspirations in life, and I have a brother who is, right? There are people that, like, study smoking meat. Like, you ever, you ever meet, like, guys? Well, not you, but do you ever meet guys like this? You know, I'm talking about maybe you had a brother or a father or a guy that you met. Like, not that you met a guy, but you know, you, know what I'm saying? you met a guy like this who's, like, obsessed with smoking meat. You've met this guy? Yeah, yeah your cousin. Okay, sure. Your, your cousin, your dad. Yeah, it's a so, 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 I gave it the office. So, the idea that, like, they get excited. You see them come alive. They're like, yeah, so I took it up to a temp of 120 and then uh, lowered the flame there. went uh, low and slow for the next 12 hours and I was... Uh, regularly spritzing it with apple cider vinegar and a mixture of, uh, of water and cinnamon, which really brings... And, like, cinnamon. Like, and they talk about it. It's like an exciting... Like, and, and they're like, and then I rested it for 12 hours and I was massaging it before I cut it. And, you know, it's like... They, they talk about it. Why, did, why are they so excited to watch all those YouTube videos about smoking meat? Because they tasted meat. And they say, that's awesome. I want some of that. We come to kids today and we say... Let me sit you down and teach you the halachas of Shabbos. And a lot of kids today are going, but I don't, I'm not rolling mesakolos here. Like, this is not alive for me. This is not a visible experience. It's not just like, like, you have to teach people, you can't just teach people what not to do on Shabbos. It's not about, people will learn the halachos. It's not about, like, los assays and assays. It's about, is this valuable to me? And the way that we talk about Shabbos, for example, matters. Because if you talk about Shabbos and you're like, this is an encounter with God, right? It's a Roa Mesakolos type of experience. So then, yes, people will come alive. But a lot of people talk about Shabbos and they're like, it's good to get off of technology for 25 hours. You know, Goyim also know how to turn off their phones. It's like, it's good to spend time with family. Yes, yes, there are Goyim who know how to turn off their phones. He said, it's good to spend time with family. Shabbos is not family time. Family time is a beautiful thing, and it happens to be we spend time with our family on Shabbos. But a guy also knows how to spend time with their family on Sundays. What are we talking about here? There has to be, some, there has to be something godly. It has to be more than just turning off your phones. So people go, yeah, I turn off my phones, say there. And you know what some kids are saying? I don't turn off my phone, because quite frankly, the experience is not valuable enough for me to turn off my phone. There's a gadol b'tayr, I won't tell you which one. There's a Gadol B'tayra who had a child who went off the derech, and the Gadol B'tayra said that he had charata, that at his Shabbos table he was discussing Rambams. He was discussing Rambams. I'm sure that the Talmidim of his yeshiva would have fought to be at his Shabbos table. I'm sure the second Shabbos was over, they would have said over every Chiddush that he said in those Rambams, they would have written them up, and we'd have Sfarim based on the things that he said at his Shabbos table. And no doubt, those Sfarim would be in the pantheon of Kali Yisrael, these would be amazing Sfarim, and every yeshiva guy would learn them. 
But this Rosh Hashiva said that he had charata that he said over Rambams. He said, I should have sung Shabbos Miros. He said, if my child would have grown up in a home where there was Shabbos Miros, maybe he would have stayed on. I would never have said that, but this God of the Torah said it about himself. A Rambam is, can be an intellectual pursuit. And his child wasn't necessarily interested in this intellectual pursuit. Sometimes a kid can confront HaKadosh Baruch Hu more in Shabbos Miros than they can in the Rambam. Sometimes, maybe I'm a little bit of a kaifer for saying this, but sometimes it's good to have a good time at the Shabbos table. That a, that a child should come to a Shabbos table knowing that there's going to be jokes, that there's going to be laughter, that there's going to be just a good time. That's also a godly way of meeting HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And sometimes a father's attempt to give over a Dvar Torah at the Shabbos table, right, that the father spent time coming up with this Chiddush that he wanted to share with his children, and sometimes it's eight minutes of the kids spacing out. You've seen this? You've lived this? You don't want to say it out loud. <laughs> You've lived it, Yeah. I have a daughter who says to me, Abba, short and sweet is better. And my wife says, you know, there are like people that pay Abba a lot of money to come and speak. And she goes, yeah, but I'm not one of them. You know? <laughs> and, and, and you know what? She's right. She doesn't want to hear a sophisticated Torah at the Shabbos table. She wants a nice idea. And then she wants schmoozing and a good time and fun. And by the way, it's my frumest daughter. It's not the daughter you're expecting. Yeah, I'm... It's not that one. It's not her. Adarabba, you know, she's the one that pays attention the most. When I give a long Torah, she's actually the one that pays attention the most. It's a different one. And she's my firmest one. She's, she, she doesn't want the intense Devar Torah. She wants a short, sweet, nice Devar Torah, and that's good. And that's what we do. And I always say, I'm like, this one's for you. It's a short and sweet one. 60 seconds, you know? And that's also good. It's also a way of making a healthy Shabbos table. Our children need to be Roam Esakolos. If we want to raise the next generation of Jews, then our, the Judaism <coughs> needs to be visible to them. It needs to be a visceral experience. It can't just be intellectual. I want to share with you, I want to read to you from Rosalovechik. You know, Rosalovechik was the Rashiva of, uh, of YU. And everybody knows that Rosalovechik was a brilliant intellect. He was a real brisker. And in learning, he was tremendous. But somehow... They've made Rosalovechik into like an Einstein. They made him like this cerebral person. I want to read to you, it's a transcript, so it doesn't read exactly perfectly, but I want to read to you, you'll get the gist of it. How Rosalovechik learned Torah. Listen to what Rosalovechik says. He says, I've been a Rosh Hashiva of teacher of Talmud all my life, at least the major part of my adult life. I have taught many, many people. I don't know how many, but many people. And when I do teach, time comes to a stop for me. I don't look at the timepiece, the clock, or at my wristwatch. I just teach. It is a very, I don't know, for me, teaching has a tremendous, a very strange impact upon me. I simply feel when I do teach Torah, I feel the breath of eternity on my face. When I do teach, I feel rejuvenated, and as if I were 25 or 30 years old. If not for the study and teaching of Torah, I would have lost my sanity in the year of Triple Avelos in 67. In 1967, the Rav lost his mother, his wife, and his brother all in one year. And he's saying, if it wasn't for Tyra, I would have lost my sanity. I felt somehow, because of teaching Tyra, that I was not alone. That I had somebody. That somebody was invisible, but I felt his presence. To confide. There was somebody on whose shoulder I could cry. And there was somebody from whom I could almost demand words of solace and comfort. 
The study of Torah has had such a great cathartic impact upon me, as you understand it. It is rooted in the wondrous experience I always have when I open up a Gemara. Somehow, when I do open up the Gemara, either alone or when I'm in company, and I do teach others, I have the impression, as if I heard, I would say, soft footsteps of somebody invisible who comes and sits down with me, and sometimes looking over my shoulder. It is simply the idea, it is not a mystical idea, it's the Gemara, the Mishnah and Avos, the Gemara and Brachos. It says, Even if one person is sitting and learning Torah, the Shechina is present in that moment. And we all believe that the Nosein HaTorah, the one who gave us the Torah, has never deserted the Torah. And he simply walks, he accompanies the Torah, wherever the Torah has, let's say, a rendezvous, an appointment, a date with somebody. He is there. Therefore, the study of Torah has never been for me a dry, formal, intellectual performance act, no matter how important a role the intellect plays in Limanat Torah. You know very well that I place very much a great deal of emphasis upon the intellectual understanding and analysis of the halacha. There is no doubt that the intellect plays a tremendous role in Limanat Torah. However... Talmud Torah is more than the intellectual performance. It is a total, all-encompassing, and all-embracing involvement, mind and heart, will and feeling, the very center of the human personality. Talmud Torah is basically, for me, an ecstatic experience in which one meets God. These words are stunningly powerful. The notion of hearing HaKadosh Baruch Hu's soft footsteps, of looking over his shoulder as he's learning a black Gemara, that the Nosein Torah is giving him the Torah at every single moment. Rav Soloveitchik was not a walking brain. Yes, he was a genius. Yes, he was a tremendous intellect. But Rav Soloveitchik was expressing the feeling of connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu that must be present in our Yiddishkeit. If we are going to be successful being the next generation of Jewish mothers and grandmothers, I'm sitting in a room of mommies and bubbies, if we are going to be the next generation that gives it over to our kids, it won't be because, and I am a big believer in learning texts, and I've said that to you before, it won't be because you know how to read a Ramban. But it will be because when you read a Ramban, it's an encounter with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It won't be because you lit Shabbos candles, but it will be because you closed your eyes and you sang V'zakeni Legado when you were lighting those Shabbos candles. It won't be because you made brachos over your food. It'll be because you made brachos just a little bit more slowly so that your children will see that for you, eating is an encounter with the divine. The way that we pass on Yiddishkeit is not intellectual, although intellect plays a tremendous role in Yiddishkeit. It's never been an intellectual pursuit. Somehow it became that in the Olam HaTayra today, it became a thing to become a professor of Rashi. It's a, it's a tragedy. There's a, uh, I said this before this week, I don't know why it keeps coming up for me. There was a, uh, there's, a there's a man in my community, his name is Seth Grossman. Anyone here know Seth Grossman? Seth Grossman's a very, very funny man. He's a brilliant man. He's a successful entrepreneur, and he's a serious Ben Tyra, and he learns a tremendous amount of Tyra. And Seth Grossman was giving a shear many years ago. He tells the story that he was giving a shear in Boca Raton in Florida. And he was giving, I think it was a Dafyomi shear, to elderly people who lived in Florida. It used to be only the elderly people lived in Florida. Before it was cool to live in Florida. Anyone here from Florida? Okay, I want you to know there was a time where 
you weren't there. There was a time where people you had to be like 65 to cross the border. They like took it was like a serious business. Now everybody is living in Florida. It's the new New York, right? It's the Jerusalem of the lower half of America. So, so he started saying over a Rashi, and this elderly man got upset. And he said, "What are you doing? You just you you're just gonna say Rashi?" And so I was like, "What do, what do you mean?" And he goes, "Before you start saying Rashi, you have to say Zuck the Rashi." You have to say, this is what the Holy Rashi says. When I was a little kid growing up in school, that's what we learned. Zuck the Heilige Rashi. Because Rashi wasn't just a commentary. You know, they call it like the commentator Rashi. You know, they have that like, you know, Ibn Ezra says. It's like, no, no, it's Zuck the Heilige Rashi. There's Kedusha here. The way that we transmit the Mesorah is through an encounter with the Divine. That's what's successful. Yosef HaTzadik didn't go, didn't, wasn't Nichshal in the Avera with Eshes Potiphar because he saw his father. Not because he heard his words or not because intellectually he said, imagine, imagine Yosef HaTzadik is about to sin with Eshes Potiphar. And he's about to sin and in that moment, Baruch Hashem, right next door there was an Eshe Torah seminar. It was a discovery seminar proving the existence of God. And Yosef HaTzadik thinks of an idea and says, well, since we can prove that there's a God, because if there's a door and the door has a design, it must be that there was a designer, therefore in this moment I won't do the Avera. Has that ever worked in the history of humanity? No. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You know what stops Yosef HaTzadik from, from doing an Avera? Because he saw his father. It's not that his father was in the window, but he saw his father. He said, ah, it's real for me. I can't bring myself to do that. He saw it. It was alive for it. It was a visible experience. David Amalek sings in Tehillim. Tamu ura'u kitov Hashem. You want to know that God is good? It's something that you taste. It's something that you see. It's visceral and it's visible. It's not intellectual. Of course, the act of learning Torah is intellectual. <coughs> but there's a, there's a soul that's within the learning. Tamu, taste, ura'u, and see. Kitov Hashem, that Hashem is good. It's not something you know intellectually. It's something you see it, you experience it. Imagine your, your husband is sitting and having a conversation with you. And you decide to share something with your husband. And you see your husband furrows his brow because he's sharing something very, you're sharing something very important. And your husband goes, wait. Just wait. And he runs into the other room and he gets out a pen and a paper. And you're speaking and he's writing. And every question, everything you say, he like, Clara, I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. He writes it all down. And then your husband starts thinking about it, and he goes, okay, so if I'm hearing you correctly, you're feeling like you're in conflict right now. On the one hand, you're feeling close to me, but on the other hand, you're feeling distant from me. I just want to analyze this for a second. On the one hand, you're feeling close to me. That seems to be that there's a feeling like you want to be close to me, but you're feeling distant from me because obviously I'm doing something wrong. And he starts to, like, Claire Hakira's in his head because he's very smart. And he goes, if I'm understanding you correctly, it really started five years ago in your mind. And it's based off of this event. You know what? I think, though, you can't say that because the truth of the matter is that three years ago I did this. Right? And you start to have a machlaikis. You start to have a gemara, like, lamdasha debate about the feeling that you're having. And after an hour of this ridiculous exercise, your husband goes, I did a good job paying attention to you, right? I can mamish give over a chazarish here on everything that you said. I know it mamish very well now. Would you feel hurt? Would you feel loved? Would you feel cared for? Of course not. You shouldn't. And yet, this is what we're doing. Does HaKadosh Baruch want intellectual exercises from us? Is that what he wants? You know, you're going to have sons. You're going to send your sons to yeshiva. Your sons are going to come home, and they're going to say, like, 
yeah, I got 100 on my test. And you might, as a mother, because you'll be sensitive and smart, you might go, he's doing well on his tests, but I don't know how into it he is. You know that, uh, that little bit of a hergish that you have that something's off. I was just in America, I was talking to a chavr of mine. He was shining, talking about one of his sons. He said, this son is a masmid. He's a masmid. Mordechai, he comes home at 5 o'clock. He basically runs, to, they have a base medrash a couple blocks from his house. He runs to the base medrash. He usually calls around 11 o'clock at night and asks for a late curfew because he's still in the middle of his sugya with his, with his chavrusa. He's so proud of his son, not because his son is the smartest, not because his son is getting the best marks on the test, though he's doing very well. What's he proud of? He's proud of his asmada. Because where does asmada come from? Asmada comes from love, not from intellect. You know, there are boys who aren't necessarily so good at it, but they love it. They just keep going. How do they do that? Because they're connected to the Eibishter entire, even if they don't understand what Rashi or Taisus is saying. We have to be so careful because... Unfortunately, in some communities, we've made our Torah academic. And it's a complicated conversation that needs to happen around the notion of student assessment when it comes to learning. Because we wanted our kids to take learning seriously, so we said, okay, we're going to test our kids and we're going to give them grades. And then we made this ridiculous system where we say, okay, let's, let's categorize these children. She got 100 on the test, so she's a good girl. She got a 30 on the test, so she's not a good girl. She got a 30 on the test, but she tries really hard, but this is what she's intellectually capable of. So she's not a good girl, she's not a bad girl. Unfortunately, she's a girl that can't make it in our system. And this girl is a bad girl, but she gets 100, so we can't do anything. And we made it academic. And then we turned around and we wondered to ourselves, why are our kids treating Judaism so academically? Well, maybe because we did that. Right? The great teachers are the ones that don't communicate academics, they communicate a love of Tyra. I'll finish with this story. Every summer for many, many years, I worked in a place called Simcha Day Camp. Some of you know Simcha Day Camp in the five towns? Yeah. Yeah. I worked in Simcha Day Camp. There was a Rebbe in Simcha Day Camp whose name is Rabbi Potash. And every single morning I made sure to stop by Rabbi Potash's classroom for davening. Every morning, I wanted to stop by. It was the inspiring moment for my entire day. And I cannot never missed it. Why? Because Rabbi Potash teaches the littlest boys in camp. The, the, like the six, seven-year-old boys that are in camp. You know, the pre-1A, first grade, uh, like just that, that age. And they have davening. What does davening sound like in a bunk in camp? It's like that same niggin or like whatever, you know like the slight variations that we have, right? The Bohemian Rhapsody of, uh, of, of <laughs> like, taking all these Nagunim, Shema Yisrael, you know, like, everyone has their own, like, Nagunim. Rabbi Potash threw out the playbook. Matovu Alech Yaakov, he blasts the speakers in his room, and he had that, at the time, it wasn't an old song then, but it wasn't a new song then, you know, the Matovu Ma Ma Ma, Ma 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 Ma. <laughs> So he would blast that song, and these six-year-olds and seven-year-olds, they would get up on their desks, and they would dance, and they would jump, and they would make trains, and they would go around the classroom saying, Ma, 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 Ma. And Rabbi Potash sometimes would be in the front, sometimes would be in the back. There was always, Rabbi Potash somehow always has like a Down syndrome kid that's in that bunk, and sometimes the Down syndrome kid is leading. And every morning I went, and I would think to myself one thing. If I had Rabbi Potash when I was seven years old as a Rebbe, Maybe davening wouldn't be so hard for me. 
Because if you grow up with Rabbi Potash as your Rebbe, and davening is a song, not just a thing that you have to like just get through, but it's like an exercise in jumping around the classroom. You know what's amazing? In Rabbi Potash's classroom, nobody is sitting down during davening. Nobody's falling asleep. Nobody's talking. You couldn't. It's too much fun. It's too alive. <coughs> if we're going to be Mechabal the Torah, then we have to be Mechabal the Torah the way Rabbi Potash does. Our Yiddishkeit can't just be stale. Of course, we've gone sometimes a little bit too far. We turned Yiddishkeit into like an NCSY comes. It's also. It has to be both. Right? We have to know how to, how to learn and learn well. And at the same time, we have to know that sometimes Yiddishkeit requires an ebbing. And putting these two things together, that's the crossroads. We're under the mountain. There are times where we don't want to. What's the solution in those times? Even in times where we're not necessarily in the mood, we have to be able to say to ourselves, I'm going to be loyal, because Yiddishkeit is something that's alive for me. Okay, we should be zeichet to a lebedikamat entire this year.